0: Our Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together on this Sunday morning as a body of believers to worship you at the highest form of worship, the study of your word. We recognize that for over 2,000 years you worked breathing out your word through the prophets of the Old Testament and apostles. In order to give to us this remarkable, inerrant, and infallible revelation of your will. That by it we have everything necessary for life and godliness. And as we come to understand your word and apply it in our lives, we are indeed transformed moment by moment from grace to grace into the image of Jesus Christ. And as this occurs... You are glorified throughout all time and eternity future in the angelic conflict. And we know that that, that is our, the chief end of man is to glorify you. So, Father, now as we come to your word, we pray that you would make these things clear to us, help us to understand and perceive their, their value for our lives, that we may glorify you in all that we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Now we have been studying Galatians now for a couple of months and we're making some progress this morning. We may come close to finishing the first chapter. Now, I know some of you doubt that. And you may be right. Galatians chapter 1, down in verse 15. Okay. Try something else to keep my Bible from flying in the wind here. See if that'll work. I think that just might do it. Okay. All right, Galatians chapter 1. Let's start off to orient ourselves. I don't know about you, but sometimes when a week's gone by, I'm not sure what we did last Sunday. I've slept seven times since then, so. We're doing good to remember that we're in Galatians sometimes. Galatians chapter 1. Always have to understand the context. Roman numeral 1 in terms of an outline. We have the opening introduction to the epistle in Galatians 1, 1 through 10. Two things are, happen in this uh, are In this introduction. First of all, you have the salutation, the greeting, and the first five verses, and then secondly, you have the expression of Paul's outrage that the Galatians have departed from grace in 1, 6 through 10. Salutation covers three main points. The first point that he expresses, and each of these points really foreshadow major themes in this epistle that Paul is going to develop. The first is his apostolic authority that he did not get his apostolic authority from man, from a man through the agency of men or a group of men, but directly from Jesus Christ and God the Father. The second thing he emphasizes is that justification is by faith alone. And this is going to be a major issue with the Galatian believers. He talks about this in the phrase, Jesus Christ who gave himself... As a substitute for our sins, that focuses on the whole doctrine of justification by faith. If Jesus Christ gave Himself as a substitute for our sins, then that means that we can add nothing to it. The completed work of Christ on the cross means that Jesus paid the penalty. All we do is accept it. Legalism says "Then that's great, that's fine for Jesus Christ to have died on the cross for our sins, but somehow we have to do something to merit it. We have to do something to be worthy of it. God just isn't going to save us without requiring us to do something to show that that we're really sincere about it. And yet, you don't find any of that in the Scriptures whatsoever. And this was a problem in Galatia because there was a group of uh, people called Judaizers. These were Jews who came along and said, well, they challenged Paul's apostolic authority first of all, and then secondly, they thought, well, you're not just justified by faith alone. My goodness, somebody might abuse that privilege of grace. They might go out and sin, actually, and think they can get away with it. But uh, that's just totally false thinking. And they said you're justified not only by faith, but they wanted to add the works of the law to it. So Paul is going to spend a tremendous amount of time in this epistle developing the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And then the the third issue he develops is that we are sanctified or set apart. The Christian life... Is also by faith alone in the scriptures. And this is the second part of verse 4 that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. Second section, verses 6 through 10, Paul expresses his outrage. And this is incredibly strong language. Today in our Somewhat soft society, We would. some people might even say abusive language. That's how strong it is in the Greek. There are some things worth fighting and dying for, and the veracity of the gospel is one of those things. And when somebody departs from it and starts teaching a false gospel, it is time to draw the line in the sand and take a stand. Beginning in eleven, we come to the second major division of the epistle which is Paul's apostolic authority. See, he goes back here to this first point he alludes to in the salutation. We see that he is going to establish his apostolic authority, that he has the right to teach what he's teaching, and that he got it directly from God. So, we're going to establish Paul's apostolic authority in one eleven through 2.21. The first thing he does in doing this is to establish the proposition and that proposition is found in verses uh, 11 and 12. proposition is that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the point that he is going to establish in the remainder of this chapter and chapter 2. So he establishes the proposition that he received the gospel directly from God and then he in point the second point here is really this is uh, 111 through 12 for the point A and point B is 13 through 221 the remainder of the chapter he's going to give the evidence which supports his claim to authority from God not man now the interesting thing about this that you must must remember and that is that God often in the Scripture may do something in private just between God and the individual. But never does God do something in private without authenticating it with objective, verifiable information. In other words, the person who comes along and says, well, God spoke to me and told me to do this. If there isn't clear demonstrable objectifiable verifiable evidence to substantiate that then god wasn't the one who was leading you to do whatever it is you think he was leading you to do that's mysticism and that has nothing to do with biblical christianity so often people think that the internal leading of the holy spirit Has something to do with this internal feeling or emotion that somehow I have this liver quiver and therefore God is leading me to do this. Well, that has nothing to do with Scripture. God's leading for the New Testament believer, for the church age believer, is to put his focus on the Word of God. What God wants you to do in this church age is clearly spelled out in Scripture, and if it's not spelled out in Scripture, then those are arenas of freedom and it's up to you to apply whatever doctrine you have to make that decision. That gives you a tremendous amount of freedom and latitude in the spiritual life. Very important. So what we see here in this whole section, very important principle is that God clearly called Paul to the apostolic ministry, and it wasn't something that was done subjectively in private on the road to Damascus, but there was clear evidence to substantiate that proposition. So he's going to give the evidence. And the first line of evidence that he gives is evidence of his life prior to salvation. And we saw that prior to salvation, Paul relied upon works exclusively. He was born a Hebrew of the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, and that he was a Pharisee. In fact, he was a Pharisee that was moving up rapidly in the ranks because of his zealous crusade to annihilate. Christianity, wherever he could find it. Verses uh, 13 through 14 describe his past. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to annihilate it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen because I was more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions." And then in verses 15 through 17, which is where we find ourselves now, Paul gives evidence from his salvation. He says, But when he who had set me apart, that is, God the Father, even from birth, accurate translation there, even from birth, and called me by means of his grace. And last time we talked about the doctrine of the divine call. The definition of that for your notes is that the divine call is the work of God the Holy Spirit toward believers only. We saw that in Romans eight, twenty nine to thirty, the divine call is limited to believers only. Now this is not talking about the external call or invitation by a pastor, teacher, or an evangelist or somebody else in witnessing to trust Christ as your Savior. That's a phrase that theologians develop and you really don't have that concept in the Scriptures. This is the internal call. And what we saw in Romans 8:29 and 30 last time is that there is a set group of people described in those verses. Those who are predestined, these He called, no more and no less. So God does not call any unbeliever who remains an unbeliever throughout His life. God the Holy Spirit only calls unbelievers who He knows will respond by faith alone in Christ alone. We saw in our development of that doctrine that in eternity past there was the do- there was a council which is referred to as the doctrine of divine decrees. This is an eternal decree. That means there never was a time throughout all of eternity when this was not true. God does not add to his knowledge at all. He is omniscient. That means that he forever throughout all eternity has simultaneously known all the knowable so that whenever we speak of the council of divine decrees and God's decrees related to salvation, we know that these decrees are eternal based upon His omniscience and His foreknowledge, which is a subcategory of His omniscience that relates to believers only, and express His elective will. And in that context, we saw last time, I don't have time to go over it again, so if you missed it, and this is a very important doctrine, you can get the tape from John. But the, uh, uh, that the sovereignty of God, one of the decrees was that the sovereignty of God would coexist with human freedom, volition in human history. And that God would not violate human freedom, but neither would human freedom dictate the sovereignty of God. They would coexist throughout all of human history. And so calling, therefore, is related to the outworking of God's divine decree and His foreknowledge in relationship to the believer. There are... Uh, six reasons why six purposes for the divine call there first of all we are called into fellowship with God 1 Corinthians 1:9 1, we are called to freedom uh, Galatians uh, 6, one or 5:1 we are called to eternal life 1 Timothy 6:12 we are called for the purpose of spiritual growth Ephesians 4:1 uh, and we are also called to suffer 1 Peter 2:20 and twenty one and then sixth we are called to glorify God in in the angelic conflict. Now that brings us to verse sixteen. In terms of Paul's specific life and his apostolic ministry, we see that he was called to reveal his Son in me. That is the purpose of Paul's salvation relates to his ministry as an apostle, that God would reveal through the Apostle Paul the person and work of Jesus Christ. And no other author in the New Testament is more responsible for developing all of the uh, aspects of the work of Christ on the cross than the Apostle Paul, especially in the epistles of Romans and Galatians. He develops in detail all of the doctrines that relate to the work of Christ on the cross. Doctrines of redemption, that we are bought with a price. The doctrine of justification. Now, you always hear silly people who haven't thought very much, and you find that mostly at seminaries and Bible colleges who say the justification, they come up with this little word, I left something out there, and they, they try to get this little phrase to remember what it means, just as if I'd never sinned. Well, that's not what justification means. It's not just as if you'd never sinned. When we are born, we're all born sinners lacking righteousness. We have a sin nature, which we inherited... ...from Adam because of his sin. At the point of birth, God the Father imputes to our genetically received sin nature... ...Adam's original sin. So, strike one is we're born with a sin nature. Strike two is we have, been, uh, ha- we have imputed to us Adam's original sin. And then strike three is we commit personal sins... But we commit personal sins because of our sin nature. We are not uh, sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And that's very important. So we are born without righteousness. And when God looks at us in His perfect righteousness, He is absolute righteousness and He is perfect justice. What the righteousness of God approves... The justice of God blesses. But the righteousness of God cannot approve our lack of righteousness. So the righteousness of God rejects our negative righteousness. Therefore, the justice of God must condemn our negative righteousness. But Jesus Christ went to the cross. And at the cross, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, was perfect righteousness. God the Father looked upon His sacrifice on the cross, and His perfect righteousness and justice were satisfied. This is called the doctrine of propitiation. Propitiation means to be satisfied. God the Father was satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross, so that what Jesus Christ did on the cross, what the righteousness of God saw, He approves, so the justice of God blesses. At the point of our salvation, at the point of our salvation, God the Father imputes to us, that means He credits to our account, legally, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we are still experientially minus R. But we have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that is ours. It is our possession. So now we have the perfect righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God, the integrity of God looks down upon our perfect righteousness and the perfect righteousness of God approves our perfect righteousness so the justice of God can then bless us. And this is all done as an expression of the love of God through the grace of God. Grace means that it is a free gift. We do nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it, nothing to merit it. We can give nothing back to God whatsoever. Jesus Christ paid it all at the cross. That is what justification means. So all of these things were accomplished at the cross, but it is left to the Apostle Paul and his unique ministry to the Gentiles to develop all of these important doctrines in his epistles. So verse 16 tells us that his purpose for his life was to reveal his Son in me that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. So his point here is that to the Judaizers, remember, the Judaizers came along and part of their attack was to discredit Paul's authority. Authority orientation is important in every arena of life especially in the church. One of the problems with Christianity is everybody wants to think they're an authority on Scripture. And there are some groups that say that this is part uh, part of the doctrine of the believer's priesthood, is that he has the right to interpret Scripture any way he wants to. Well, think about that. That's the most foolish, subjective statement I ever heard of in my life. That people who have no knowledge whatsoever of Scripture who've never spent any time studying the original languages, who don't understand the historical backgrounds of the New Testament, much less the Old Testament, which is even further removed, have the right to interpret the Scripture however they want to. Well, in one sense they do, just as everybody has the right to be wrong. And the reason is that that, the problem with that is it leads to raw subjectivity, that I can just come to the passage and say, well, this means whatever I want it to mean. But there are definite rules of interpretation in the Scriptures. But they were challenging Paul's authority. and So we have to have authority. And today the authority resides in the pastor-teacher as the shepherd, the leader of the local congregation. The leader of a flock is known as a shepherd. And that shepherd takes the sheep where the shepherd thinks it's best for the sheep to go. He doesn't take the sheep where the sheep want to go. He is the leader. And that means that he has the responsibility given to him for the welfare of the sheep. The same is true during New Testament times. They had the gift of pastor-teacher and the gift of apostle, which is no longer valid for today. It was a temporary gift. One of the requirements was that they were directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ in person. And that doesn't happen anymore today. And they also had to be a witness of the resurrected Lord, which Paul was on the road to Damascus. So Paul is going to make the point here that the purpose for his salvation was to be an apostle, to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And he got this from the Lord. He didn't get it from somebody else. And so he says, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. The Judaizers were saying, you don't have any authority because you didn't get it from Jerusalem. You didn't get it from Peter and John. And Paul is going to say... You're right, I didn't get it from Peter and John because spiritual gifts are not given by man. Spiritual gifts are given by God at the moment of salvation. This is why he had this tragedy. You know, It all, all used to really amuse me when I was in seminary because one of the big questions, seminarians get all wrapped around the axle and all kinds of questions, but it's all part of the process of growth. And you would always get guys sitting around the lunch counter and one of the discussions that would come up is, well, what do you think about Acts 1? Was Matthias an apostle or not? Remember the situation in Acts chapter 1. The Lord's ascended to heaven and He told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. So they get there and they're, they're waiting and they're praying and all these things are going on. And Peter gets this wild idea that since Judas had betrayed the Lord, their numbers had shrunk. Instead of twelve, there were now eleven. Peter got the idea there was something important about the number 12, so we've got to add somebody. We've got to replace uh, Judas Iscariot. So we're going to have an election. And we're going to choose somebody. So they held an election and they chose a guy by the name of Matthias. The thing that Peter forgot is that spiritual gifts are not given by man. The gift of apostle is a spiritual gift. It comes at the moment of salvation... And it is distributed under the sovereign authority of God, the Holy Spirit. Man cannot give spiritual gifts. That's why Paul makes the point in Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from a group of men, nor through the agency of a man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. The gift of apostleship is a spiritual gift given at the moment of salvation. So, Matthias did not have it. He also, for guys, we'll see, we're going to review the doctrine of apostleship. That an apostle is someone who was commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus Christ, not someone who's commissioned by a group of men who vote on somebody. So Matthias was never, ever an apostle. So Paul emphasizes the fact that his authority derives not from man, but that his authority comes directly from God. He was commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and therein lies his authority. And we saw in our study last week that when that happened on the road to Damascus, that was not just some internal subjective experience. Paul wasn't so caught up. I had a college professor who tried to teach this in class. That Paul was just so, such a religious activist and such a crusader and so caught up in religion that he had reacted so strongly... To, to Christianity, and here we see this psychological interpretation of the Bible. That what happened is that finally he had gotten all caught up in all of this, this religious activity that he just went off the deep end and went to the other extreme. And he has, it's a hot day on the road to Damascus and the sun's shining brightly, and he had a heat stroke. And there's this blinding flash of light, and if any of you have ever had heat exhaustion or a heat stroke, That's pretty much what happens. And he had this blinding flash of lightning, and in this he has this religious experience and thinks he sees Jesus, and so he converts and goes just the opposite of the way he had been going. But to say something like that is to totally ignore what the Bible says. And that's what most of these people do, is they're not satisfied with what the Bible says, so they pull out their little exacto knife and they start cutting out verses of Scripture and ignoring various passages. But the Scripture says that while Paul was the only one who heard specifically what the Lord had to say, because the Lord wasn't speaking to his companions, his companions all saw the bright light, and his companions all heard a voice. That's objective. That means there are witnesses. What Paul is saying to the Galatians is, if you want to question whether this happened to me or not, there are people back in Jerusalem who were with me, who are still alive right now. And you can go ask them. And they'll tell you that something objective and happened on the road to Damascus. And beyond that, I was blinded. And the Lord gave me instructions to go to the house of Ananias in, in Damascus. And then I would be healed. And this happened. There were witnesses. Those on the road knew he was blind. They went with him. They knew that Ananias healed him. And they probably heard what Ananias told him so uh, Paul did not get his authority from from Jerusalem but he did get it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ which is consistent with what er, everything the scripture teaches about uh, the the uh, spiritual gift of apostle verse seventeen he says nor did I go up to Jerusalem so he didn't consult with anybody and he says nor did I go up to Jerusalem now the reason he says go up to Jerusalem, this is a uh, This is a typical Hebrew idiom. The way the Jews looked at the land of Israel, we talk about up is north and down is south. Anybody who ever takes a map course knows there's a little phrase that north is always up. Right? But in Israel, they think in terms of elevation. So because Jerusalem is higher in elevation than most of of Israel, they always go up to Jerusalem because they have to climb the hill. And they go down to other parts, whether they're going north, south, east, or west, doesn't matter. You always go up to Jerusalem and you go down to other parts of Israel. So they think in terms of up and down spatially instead of uh, directional. So he he says, Neither did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. This is a before in time. That is prior to me. But I went away to Arabia... And returned once more to Damascus. So let's get a little summary here of what's going on in, in, um, in Paul's life. Well, first of all, I want to talk about Arabia. If you have a map of the uh, eastern Mediterranean it looks something like this, and down here we have Israel, and south is Judea, Jerusalem's about here. Dead Sea is about here. Syria is this province up here. Syria, Cilicia also included Tarsus, which was Paul's hometown, which would be located right about here. And it was an area that went something like this. And over here is Damascus. And that's where Paul was headed when he came to trust the Lord. Now, Damascus was captured by the Romans in 66 B.C., Arabia, Nabataean Arabia, not, we're not talking down here on the Arabian Peninsula, but this area of Arabia under the control of the Nabataeans, which existed just outside of Damascus. In fact, Damascus had a large uh, ethnic Nabataean population, and their ruler was a man who was called an ethnarch. That was his title. And he represented the uh, native Nabataeans to the king, king Aretas, who was the uh, king of the Nabataeans out here. So, uh, the king of the Nabataeans is uh, King Aretas IV. And this is important to understand some things about Paul that are going to be said. uh, and Passages we'll look at in a minute. So, he's up here in Damascus, and he doesn't have to travel far. He just goes out into the desert here for a period of uh, 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 an unknown length of time, probably a few weeks, maybe a couple of months but he needs to be alone. Why do you think Paul needed to be alone? He had a lot to think about. He had been obsessively devoted to the task of destroying Christianity because as he understood the Old Testament, Christianity was completely wrong. And now he's had this blinding flash of reality, as literally, as the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So now Paul has to rethink everything. He has to go out by himself and rethink through the implications of this and how it relates to all of the Old Testament prophecy. He has to think about the role of law because this man's been devoted to law. As far as he was concerned, morality was how you got to God. See, that's one of the biggest problems with Christianity is they confuse morality with spirituality. Now, I'm not saying that spirituality has nothing to do with morality. But I'm saying that morality is what God established for everybody, believer and unbeliever. The Mosaic Law reflects a moral standard. These are mandates for everybody. The Mosaic Law is not a way to salvation. Most people don't understand that. never was a method of salvation in the Old Testament. It's not a method of salvation in the church age. The Mosaic Law was the constitution for Israel. It outlined all of the principles and guidelines and regulations for the nation Israel and for their government form, which was a theocracy. A theocracy is a government where God is the head of state. A oligarchy, you have a group of people. In a dictatorship, you have one man. In a monarchy, you have a ruling family. In a democracy, it comes from the Greek word demos, which means mob, the mob rules. Okay, it's up to the ebb and flow of the emotionalism of the masses. Democracy is one of the worst forms of government. We, don't, we're, we have moved into a democracy in this nation away from the Founding Fathers documents which indicated a representative republic which is one of the best forms of government. But a democracy uh, negates the leadership negates the principle of virtue and integrity among leaders and they become politicians and they just waffle with however they think the masses want them to, to vote. And before long, the, the society that goes into a democracy will self-destruct. But God established a theocracy in the Mosaic Law. The Ten Commandments are like the prelude. All the Mosaic Law is designed to teach Israel how you're going to function. It's for everybody in Israel, believer and unbeliever alike. That's what morality is. Spirituality, though, is something far beyond morality. It includes, of course, all the principles of morality. But the spiritual life is a life that is uniquely influenced by God the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? If it's uniquely influenced by the Holy Spirit, then the spiritual life does not relate to anything that any unbeliever can do. If an unbeliever can do it, it's not the spiritual life. Just remember that. If any unbeliever can do it, it's not the spiritual life. And so most Christians don't even have a clue as to what the spiritual life is because they're out there trying to be moral and to live a good moral life. And they do not understand the unique role of God the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. And this is explained in Ephesians 5:18 that we are to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. And then in Galatians chapter 5, we are to walk by means of the Spirit. These commands operate together. We are to be filled. That occurs at the moment of confession of sin. And it is God the Holy Spirit then who takes the Word of God and fills our soul with the Word of God. And then we continue at a moment-by-moment basis to walk. That's a step-by-step procedure where we apply the Word of God in every arena of our life until we choose to sin. Then we're out of fellowship. Then we have to use 1 John 1.9 again. Confess our sins and we're back in fellowship. And we continue again. Once we get back in fellowship, then we have to walk moment by moment by means of the Holy Spirit. This makes the spiritual life of the church age unique. It means that it is empowered uniquely by God the Holy Spirit. It is far beyond morality. Anybody can be moral, believer or unbeliever. But only in the church age can you as a believer be spiritual and that must be accomplished in the power and under the direction of God the Holy Spirit. So, the Apostle Paul has to think about all of these things. And he has to relate these doctrines to one another. All that he has learned... And he develops one of the most incredible systems of theology in the New Testament. In fact, Peter said, you need to read Paul, but boy, there are some things in Paul that are very difficult to understand. So, they were difficult for Peter to understand. Just think how difficult they are for us to understand. So, Paul has to rethink all of this. And he does that in Arabia. And then he returns to Damascus and spends some three years there. Now... We talked about the doctrine of Apostle and I want to take a few minutes just to review the doctrine of Apostle. So, begin with the definition. Point number one. Apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos. A-P-O-S-T-O-L-O-S That's a P-O-S-T-O-L-O-S. Now, there are two senses in which this word is used in the New Testament. It's used in a general sense, and it's used in a specific sense. Now, the root meaning of the word describes someone who has been commissioned by a group or an individual to perform a task Okay, it refers to a person who's been commissioned by either a group or an individual, some authorizing agent, and given the authority to perform a specific task. Now, the general usage would refer to those who are commissioned by a local church, like Barnabas, Junius, a number of other people who are mentioned in the New Testament. They don't have the spiritual gift of apostle. They've been commissioned by a local church, As a missionary, that's just a general everyday use that fit in line with the secular usage of the word in Greek. But there's a specific use, and this specific use of the word apostle refers to those who have the spiritual gift of apostle and who meet certain qualifications. And this describes the 11 original disciples plus the apostle Paul. That brings us to point two, which lists the six requirements for apostleship given in the New Testament. Six requirements. First requirement, an apostle of Jesus Christ must be Jewish. An apostle must be Jewish. Second requirement, first requirement, they must be of the nation Israel. They were sent out originally to the house of Israel, Matthew 10.6. This was before the church age. This was a limited use of apostles. The disciples were sent out that way. And then according to Deuteronomy 18.9, when you compare it with Romans 3.1-2 and and Matthew 10.1-5, we see the principle that the Scriptures are given to Israel. Israel was specifically given the custodianship of the revelation of God. And so the apostles, as those who would deliver more revelation, had to be from the nation Israel. So apostles had to be Jewish. Secondly, an apostle must have received a call and a commission to his office directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. An apostle must have received his call and commission to his office directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. That eliminates everybody today who runs around saying they're an apostle. See this in um, uh, Acts. Uh, excuse me, in Galatians one one. Especially in comparison to the fiasco in Acts one24 to twenty six. Three, an apostle must have um, must have been an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ in His teachings. This is found in John 15, 27, Luke twenty two twenty eight, 28, and Acts 1, 21-22. They were eyewitnesses of the Lord's teaching. Now, a question always comes up at this point as to what about the Apostle Paul. And we've gone over this before, and I'll mention it again. That if the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, let's just say approximately 32 A.D., He was born in 4 B.C. Now, the stoning of Stephen would have been between 34 and 36 A.D. And Paul was approximately 30 years of age at that time. And if you subtract that, that means Paul was born about 6 A.D., 5 to 6 A.D. He came to uh, Jerusalem between 15 and 19 A.D. Where he came under the training of Gamaliel to be a Pharisee which means that uh, Paul was in his early 20s during our Lord's public ministry in Jerusalem. And with all the uh, uh, notoriety associated with Jesus' ministry, it would be absurd to think that the Apostle Paul was ignorant of it. He probably was there. He just wasn't responding, but that was true about many people even James the writer of the New Testament epistle and Jude the writer of the New Testament epistle were not believers until after the resurrection. Paul made it clear that he met this requirement as an apostle 1 Corinthians 9:1, 1, 1 Corinthians 15:8, and Acts 22:6 through 21. Point number 4. An apostle must possess authority in communicating divine revelation what he said was not up to a vote it came directly from god what he wrote under divine inspiration was indeed the voice of god and carried the authority of god passages which declare this are 1 corinthians 2:10 galatians 1:11 through 12 also in comparison with 2 timothy 3:16 Point number five, an apostle was required to furnish the signs of an apostle. He performed certain miracles, healing. Uh, all of these were his calling cards. They, gave, uh, they provided credentials for his claims to be. And the apostles that are focused on in the New Testament all demonstrated this by miracles that were associated with them. And then sixth, an apostle possessed complete authority among all the churches. See, a pastor only has authority over his local congregation. But an apostle had authority over, the, over many different congregations. They were responsible for disseminating doctrine and for uh, revealing important new church age doctrine that had never before been revealed it's called mystery doctrine not because it's a mystery like you go down to the store and you pick up a mystery novel a whodunit this is a mystery in this sense was something that had never before been revealed in human history so just a quick review an apostle had to be Jewish secondly had to receive a call and commission directly from Christ third had to be an eyewitness to the teachings of Christ Fourth, possessed complete authority in communicating divine revelation. Fifth, an apostle was required to furnish the signs of an apostle through miracles. Sixth, an apostle possessed full authority over all the churches. The last apostle was the apostle John, who passed away went to be with the Lord sometime uh, around 95-96 A.D. Further, point number three, point number two had to do with the requirements for an apostle. Point number three, apostleship is a unique spiritual gift sovereignly delegated by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a unique spiritual gift sovereignly delegated by the Lord Jesus Christ. First First Corinthians twelve, twenty seven and twenty eight. Ephesians 4.11 Colossians 1.1 Just some passages there. Unique spiritual gift. Point number four. Today, all spiritual gifts are the permanent spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts can be classified into two categories. Permanent and temporary. The temporary gifts included miracles, Gifts of knowledge and wisdom. Prophecy. Uh, knowledge. Wisdom. Tongues. And interpretation of tongues. These were temporary spiritual gifts that were given during that period when the, completed, when the canon of the New Testament was not complete in order to uh, communicate uh, revelation in the early church age, that was not accessible through a written canon of Scripture. It's very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 13.10 that the Scripture says, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is partial will be done away with. And it's very clear that what's partial there has to do with revelation. Just prior to that, it talks about these two gifts, prophecy and knowledge, which are related to the giving of revelation. Now, the word partial indicates that we're dealing with with numbers. The Greek word there translated perfect is the word telios, T-E-L-E-I-O-S. That's a word that we studied on Wednesday night in our study of James. Never once in the New Testament does this word have a qualitative meaning. By qualitative, I mean perfect. It never ever means perfection. In the New Testament, it always has the idea of quantity completing something, so bringing something that's partial to completion. It's very obvious from the context of 1 Corinthians 13:8 through 10. For now we know in part, and we prophesy in part. What are we talking about? We're talking about something that's incomplete. So therefore, the context would be meaningless if it shifted to the idea of something perfect. And you always find people who say, well, it's perfect. It's when the Lord comes back. Or it's when we get to heaven face to face with the Lord. Or it's uh, some kind of this, this perfect thing so that these gifts all continue until the second coming. Well, that just violates the whole context of the passage. The passage is talking about perfect and about completion and the reason they get into this is that next verse it says for now we see through a mirror dimly and if you study the Greek behind that you realize that that Paul is using terminology that he picks up from Old Testament passages in Deuteronomy which talk about how God gives his revelation to Moses Uh, he doesn't hide it he doesn't, uh, doesn't cloak it, but he, get, he speaks to Moses mouth to mouth. So Paul picks up this same imagery, uses some of the same terminology, and says that now uh, God we, we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Well, what's the now then? Now is a very precise word in the Greek, and it's different from the now in the next verse. The now in the next verse, the last verse of 1 Corinthians 13, says now, now uh, abide faith hope, and love. But it's a different now. It's a, that now has a broader meaning. Now in the church age. Well, if that's now in the church age, if faith, hope, and love abide, what's well, the other now? Well, the other now in the previous verse now has a more immediate sense. Now in this pre-canon period, right now when we don't have the completed canon of Scripture, we see through a mirror dimly because we don't have all the Scripture. But then, when we do have the completed canon of Scripture... We see face-to-face. Because when we're face-to-face with Scripture, and remember in James chapter 1, it talks about how when we look into the perfect law of liberty, it reflects to us who we are. So when we're honest with Scripture, it tells us who we are. And this is called the perspicacity of Scripture. It makes clear to us who we are and what we are and, strips past and goes past all of our denials and all of our illusions about ourselves and reveals to us who we really are and what God has done for us. And that only comes when we have a completed canon of Scripture. So, 1 Corinthians 13, from verse 8 and following, it's clear that partial there refers to the incomplete Scripture. And then when that which is complete comes, that which is partial Prophecy and knowledge specifically, also including these other gifts, tongues was given uh, as a sign of judgment to the Jews. And it passed away in 70 A.D. when uh, uh, Israel went out under the fifth cycle of discipline and was destroyed by the uh, legions uh, of Titus. And the Roman army wiped out Jerusalem and the Jews Were destroyed as a nation. At that point, it was no longer necessary for tongues to be a sign of judgment to the nation Israel, because no nation existed. So, tongues ended at 70 A.D. Miracles, knowledge, prophecy, all the other sign gifts passed away by the death of the last apostle. But they were dying away even before that. There were people that that Paul couldn't heal, and others. Uh, He even told he couldn't heal Timothy. Told Timothy to take some wine for his stomach's sake, and this was um, this was all all indicates that some gifts were temporary, including the gift of Apostle. So, today, all spiritual gifts that exist are the permanent spiritual gifts, or the only spiritual gifts that exist are the permanent ones, and the temporary ones, like Apostle, have passed from the scene. Point number five, in the pre-canon period of the church age, that is from about 35 A.D. to about 95 A.D., uh, certain temporary spiritual gifts were given to carry on for the church to carry on until the canon was completed. Until the canon was completed and they had had, uh, full knowledge of the mystery doctrine. Point number six, certain gifts such as apostleship, prophecy, miracles, healing tongues, interpretation of tongues, the gift of knowledge and wisdom, the gift of exhortation, the gift of discerning spirits, and the temporary gift of faith uh, ceased their function by 96 A.D. Certain temporary gifts such as apostleship, prophecy, miracles, healing, tongues, interpretation of tongues, the gift of knowledge and wisdom, gift of exhortation, gift of discerning spirits, and the temporary gift of faith are all out of function now. They haven't been operational since 96 A.D. Point number seven. Once the canon of the New Testament was completed and circulated, all temporary spiritual gifts were withdrawn. Once the canon was complete, temporary spiritual gifts were removed. Point number eight. The apostles to the church were not appointed until after the resurrection to Christ, according to Ephesians 4.8 and 4.11. Christ distributed them. Now, the reason that's important is because some people who don't understand dispensational distinctives go back... To when, when Jesus Christ commissioned the twelve to go to the house of Israel. And the, the word apostolos is used there, but that's in his general sense of those who are commissioned with a task and sent out. So apostles don't begin until the day of Pentecost after the resurrection of Christ. Point number nine flows from that the apostles to the church are therefore not to be confused with the apostles to Israel in Matthew 10:2 through 4 The apostles to the church are not to be confused with the apostles to Israel. That's why it's so important when you're talking about the word apostle to realize that you have to define for yourself in the context who is commissioning and what is the task. And that's going to tell you whether we're talking about somebody who has the spiritual gift of apostleship given by the Lord Jesus Christ, distributed by God the Holy Spirit, or whether or not we're talking about some more general meaning of the word apostle. Don't make the mistake, like so many make today, is confusing apostleship with the, gift of being, or with the task of being a missionary. Being an apostle might have included a missionary function, but they are not identical Point number 10, the Apostle John was the last of the apostles and died approximately 96 A.D. And then point number 11, any claim to be an apostle today is heresy and blasphemy and is in complete violation of the Word of God. Okay, let's get back to our passage. Galatians 1.18 After he returned to Damascus, the Apostle Paul says they spent three years there. and We know from other passages, like Acts chapter 9, that during that time he was, he was teaching in Damascus. Very likely, he was teaching among the Nabataeans. Now, these were the Arabs who lived in, in the Damascus area. And we know from from 2 Corinthians that he says that that it was the ethnarch of of Damascus that was responsible for for running him out of town. And in Acts chapter 9, we're told that it was the Jews. So there was a joint conspiracy between the Nabataeans and the Jews as a result of Paul's ministry to run him out of town. In fact, they wanted to uh, capture him and take, take his life and the other believers there in Damascus lowered him down in a basket by a rope outside the city wall so he could escape into the night. He apparently had a a ministry that stirred up a tremendous amount of trouble among both the Jews and the Gentiles there in Damascus. So he left uh, Damascus under cover of darkness and made his way down to, uh, to Jerusalem. And his purpose there was to uh, spend some time with Peter and the other apostles if he could. He he only spent time with Peter. I went up to Jerusalem and became acquainted with Cephas. This is the Aramaic, or really, it should be pronounced Kephas, because none of these uh, Latin or Greek do, do not have a soft C like we pronounce in English. So he went down to spend some time with Kephas, the Aramaic form of Peter. It means rock in Aramaic. And he spent 15 days with him. Now, that's just a very, very short short time. He was not going to Jerusalem in order to confirm his doctrine or anything else. He was just going down there to spend some time with, with, uh, with Peter. And in verse 19, he says, "...but I did not see any other of the apostles except James." Now, this except James does not mean apostles except James, James being an apostle. He didn't see anybody else except James. He didn't see any other apostles and he didn't see anyone else of note except James. That's the thrust here because James was not one of the eleven and James was not an apostle. He was the leader of the local church in Jerusalem and he is never an apostle in the broader sense of the term that we have been talking about as one given the spiritual gift of apostle who exercised authority over a plurality of congregations. James was the pastor of of the local congregation there in James. And he is also the author of the epistle to James, which we are studying on on Wednesday night. So his point here is simply that I went down to Jerusalem, but it wasn't to get authority. It wasn't for any other reason, because my authority comes exclusively from the Lord Jesus Christ. I went down to Jerusalem to uh, visit with Peter. Peter. And to spend some time with him to ask him some questions, the word here in Greek is historesei. From the uh, it's the aorist active of historeo in the Greek, which is the word from which we get our word history. It means to examine, to learn something, and to spend uh, time and analysis. So he went down there. They were having good time in doctrinal theological discussion, and then. Uh, he, he just spent a short time there, and then he left. And he went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. This is uh, up where Tarsus is, his hometown. And he was. Uh, it says that he's still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. And as we conclude, I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 9, And let's look and get a little fuller picture of what was going on here. Acts chapter 9. Fit these two accounts together because they seem a little contradictory. Right after Paul is saved, verse 20, he says, "...and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God." Paul sets his pattern immediately. He begins to proclaim the gospel to the Jews." But remember, he's an apostle to the Gentiles. So he's going to stir up a little trouble. He goes first to the Jews. And, uh, and all those hearing him, verse 21, all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who came here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. Now, in that verse, it tells us that the Jews were plotting against him. But in 2 Corinthians 11:32, we're told that the Nabataeans conspired to kill him. How do we put that together? Well, Paul went to the Jews first and got them mad at him, and then he went to the Gentiles there and got them mad at him. So they got together and said, "We've got to get rid of this guy. He's just causing too much trouble." And they were plotting against Him. They were watching, verse 24, they were watching the gates day and night to put Him to death. But verse 25, His disciples took Him by night, led Him down through an opening in the wall, lowered Him in a large basket. Now this is when He's there after, at the end of three years. Then verse 26, when He'd come to Jerusalem, He was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of Him. The only person who ultimately spent any time with Him was, was Peter. They didn't want to believe he was a disciple. And this is when he meets Barnabas. And Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas apparently speaks up for Paul to give him credibility. Verse 28, and he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. So during this 15-day period, when he's there speaking with Peter, uh, he goes about proclaiming the gospel in Jerusalem and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, and they were attempting to put him to death. So he's just causing trouble everywhere he goes, and I think one of the most interesting verses in all of Scripture comes in verse 31. Uh, Let's pick up 30. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea, and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. <laughs> Paul was just one of those anxious new believers. He was on fire. He caused When he was preaching the truth, he created all kinds of problems. And then he went away and matured over the next, I think it was about 14 years, before he came back from Tarsus to Antioch and began his first journey. So that's just sort of a summary of the early life of Paul and his conversion and what happened right after it. So in terms of our understanding of Galatians chapter 1, he gives evidence of his apostleship from what happened prior to his conversion. Then he gives evidence what happened at his conversion in verses 15 through 17. And then in verses 18 through 24, he gives evidence from what happened just after his salvation. And it all culminated in the fact that God was glorified because of Paul. Galatians 1.24 So with that, let's bow our heads and close our eyes and dismiss in prayer. Father, we do thank You for this time to look at Your Word, our understanding of important doctrines related to these passages, especially grace, that our salvation is by grace. That means we do nothing to earn it or deserve it. You have done it all. So salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we pray that you would take the things that we have learned today. God, the Holy Spirit, would drive them deep within the mentality of our souls so that we can remember them and recover them when we need to use these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.